Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome to another episode of the Pod Control Podcast. Um, it's uh, we're, we're finally getting into the the real heat of the summer here, and uh, and the the dog days of you know between the spring uh, conference season and the fall conference season. Uh, how's it going, Brian? It's good. It's good. Yeah. Speaking of dog days, it's uh, we've had rain here for like ten week, ten days in a row, and then you get the normal southern humidity. It is like. Uh, I don't even know what the, I mean. It's like being inside of like a super uh, damp, like uh, hair dryer here. It is, it is so hot and steamy, and whew. so glad to actually be inside for the day. But uh, but yeah, you're right. It's it's it is a weird time. Like you finish, you know, like there's so much news that comes at you from like KubeCon and Red Hat Summit and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden it's like nothing. So <laughs> which is just kind of a weird, uh, you know, it's just like you hit the brakes or something like that. But uh, so. You know, I was thinking about that. So, like, in that context, um, you know, we're – the community is, like, 10 releases into Kubernetes, which, you know, feels like a long time, two and a half years, um, you know, of releases. And, you know, we, we sat at, at Red Hat Summit and we heard, you know, literally dozens of customers telling their stories. And I kind of thought about it because um, I was talking to another company here just a few days ago. And they were asking just a bunch of sort of like basic questions of like, well, you know, how, how should I deploy something? What should I do? And you start to realize like, okay, the, the bigger majority of people that will eventually run Kubernetes, assuming, you know, the community doesn't screw this up and, and people adopt it and so <laughs> forth, um, you know, it would be useful to maybe uh, put some stuff out there to help them, you know, what, what are the lessons we've learned over two and a half years and, and you know, what, what sort of basics could they uh, could they glean from from these people that have you know been working on it for a while? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's sort of a couple of natural instincts uh, that you run into in technology. Um, one is you know you want to make this this perfect perfect thing. You want to do it right the first time, and that happens with and it's never right the first time. Right. Uh, whether that's uh, building systems or writing code, and you go back and you look at you like, ooh, that's ugly. I can do that cleaner, and and you kind of learn and pick up. So everyone's always looking for, well, did someone else do this before and went through that cycle? So instead of me, you know, revising it ten times, I can pick up three someone's three revisions, and then now I'm only doing it seven times. So I think that that's a p- definitely a piece of it. Right. Well, and I think the other thing, you know, is, is I was listening to to customers, and again, you know. Y- y- Go back and, and look at videos from KubeCon or Red Hat Summit or, or whatever you want to. Um, there are plenty of stories of somebody who says, look, I got a Kubernetes cluster up and running in X number of hours or X number of days, whatever. Um, but when you when you listen to companies who you know are getting applications into production you know, at, at a decent volume um, enough, they've made enough change that the business sort of is like, oh, okay, this is, this is reasonable change. Like, those things take a while. They can take 12 months, 18 months. Sometimes they take longer than that because um, you realize like there is retooling, there's culture change, there's skill changes. And, um, you know, so I, I thought maybe we could sort of kind of summarize some of what we've seen from a lot of those and then just maybe pass along, you know, if if you were somebody who looked at Kubernetes, I don't know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, and you, maybe you were like, eh, I don't know if it's very mature. I don't know if it's ready to go. Like, what are some of the things that have changed significantly to where it might be like, oh, okay, like you said, we we learned some lessons as a community, and and uh, you know, the first first pass not so good, second pass you know better than the first. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think definitely, I think it's it's kind of breaks into a couple different areas, and uh, the one that um, I think is pretty relevant because we kind of saw this in the early OpenStack days was uh, skill set mismatches, right? So hey, we do X today, and we want to do this new thing Y, like. 
can my people learn that? Do I have to hire people? How do I get them up to speed? All that kind of stuff. And and I think what companies have, I think, starting to learn a little bit is, you know, the old days when they actually did a lot of uh, internal training and and internal learnings, um, you know, the, and build you know build up the skill sets internally. You know, they didn't have to go out and find people. That now these you know kind of new technologies, there's not a lot of people that have those skills, so they go out to. Uh, find someone on the market and they find they're paying you know double what they think is market rate for for that type of role. So I think what we're starting to see is is the kind of companies be more willing to, well, how do I bring my teams, what skills do they need? How do I bring my teams up to speed to be able to run, manage a, a Kubernetes environment across across all their teams. Right. So I figured, you know, maybe we even start there. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's start with that. So and maybe we'll break it down sort of like ops skills you know, do do the dev skills have to change? And then, you know, what are some of the other sort of hygiene and security skills? So, so if we start with ops skills, um, you know, I, I, like I tell a lot of people, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, one of the things, at least for the, the vast majority of what you're dealing with uh, around Kubernetes or a lot of the things in open source these days, you've got to have some basic Linux skills, right? Um, yes, stuff like Windows containers are coming along. But, um, you know, Linux skills are sort of one of the, the most basic things that you've got to have. You want to have some folks that, you know, have dealt with that, you know, know how to go get packages, know how to, you know, load up hosts and so forth. I think I feel like that's that's sort of one of those core basic things that, that you got to have at least a few folks in your team that can, you know, kind of build up Linux environments and understand, you know, kind of how to deal with basic Linux uh, technologies. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's what we even saw that yeah, obviously OpenStack being all built on Linux, it was a similar kind of thing there. Right. And where we saw the struggle transition was, hey, I was a Windows Server admin, um, then I was a VMware admin and it was very, you know, GUI oriented for probably eighty percent of the of the users. Um, so then it was a really tough transition. Where I think what I think's a little bit different now is even those those um Ops people who were say weren't very Linux centric previously. As Microsoft has moved more in that direction, even things using things like PowerShell and stuff like that, um, you're, you're seeing much the, the overall Linux IQ. I would say on the ops side, uh, start to increase. Even if they're not a big, you know, obviously a big Linux shop has has a lot of Linux skill sets, um, but even ones that didn't, I think you're starting to see an overall sort of uh, lift in the in the Linux IQ. Which, like you said, it's a, it's a it's a starting point. You you have yeah. to have that. Yeah. I, I think the other thing we've seen when people sort of will ask us, well, you know, what, what does a successful ops team look like or something? Um, you know, I, I think if you if you were to sort of combine your, your your sort of Linux sysadmin people with the folks that have dealt with virtualization, I think is, is typically a good starting point. And I say that um, in the context of the folks that have dealt with virtualization, which is, you know, a huge uh, set of people, they've dealt with... Um, you know, how do I deal with resources that um, aren't totally fixed and static? So they're used to some things moving around. They're used to the concept of, you know, things being defined in software and, and having to sort of understand the nuances of, of, of what that means, whether it's, you know, talking to a storage system or, you know, a resource is moved from server A to server B. And how do I, how do I track that? Um, because a lot of the, the concepts that are Evolving, especially around the infrastructure in uh, in Kubernetes, you can draw some 
fairly straightforward parallels to a lot of the things we sort of learned in virtualization. At least kind of the the, the getting started with Kubernetes isn't a, a humongous leap. Um, you know, you still have sort of a control plane. You still, you know, are going to define hosts that are going to be part of clusters. Uh, those clusters are going to move resources around for you. Um, all those sort of concepts aren't totally foreign to the to the virtualization team. Yeah, I, I think I think the best way I wrapped up is sort of like platform management. So if you were a Linux yeah. server manager, you manage servers, you configured them, you you were the the administrator administrator on it, logging in, and, and people gave you stuff to set up uh, and manage. Whereas with with virtualization, even it was, hey, we're managing you know these virtual networks and and options and resource groups and these types of things, and other people are spinning up servers and consuming them, and we sort of have to be able to corral that without you know totally controlling them and i think that's that fits very well mindset wise with kubernetes of being like hey we're you know we're setting up this platform but hopefully other people are going to be the ones spinning up these containers so we need to do it in a sane way right right um you know and i think the other thing is is one of the first things that'll jump out at you when you're dealing with kubernetes is you know it has this concept of you know you don't just sort of throw resources you know, like in the virtualization world Maybe you built a cluster that was going to be all your web hosts. Another one was going to be all your Windows machines. Not, you know, Kubernetes typically is like kind of throw things at the platform, and it it has some smarts. It understands that things are different. It's going to have different ways of scheduling stuff, and and just like you know, back in the virtualization days where people were afraid to turn on. Uh, you know, the thing that would allow vMotion to just happen, right? The sort of smarts to to do that, and then eventually it was like, oh yeah, that just the system's pretty darn smart. It's going to work and so forth. I think that level of, of kind of trusting that the system will figure out how to package all these resources across a bunch of a bunch of compute sources and, and so forth is something that the, the sooner you start to kind of allow that to happen, I mean, we are 10 releases into something. It's, it's gotten pretty mature. Um, the the better off you're not sort of dragging a, kind of a legacy way of thinking about, you know, let's just completely isolate this over here and completely isolate that over there. Um, you know, sort of the, the better off you'll be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the, um, you know, it's that platform thinking and and sort of resource management that becomes really important. Um, you know, we've talked about things like lift and shift before, and it's like you can you can do that, but if you're lifting and shifting and then isolating, and a lot of times you're like you 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 flailed your arms a lot, but you didn't get very far. Right, right. Okay, so uh, you know we could go into a lot of depth around around the operation stuff. A lot of these things we've some of them we've talked about in in previous shows. So if you're kind of picking up on this show. Uh, now you know go back and, and take a look at some of the basics of like you know how do i how do i dockerize an application how do i you know how do i attach storage how does networking work um you know we tried to cover some of those things but let's talk a little bit about sort of the the dev skills i mean if you're if you're a developer today you're a java developer or you're a you know whatever ruby developer do you have to change a whole lot to to deal with a, a kubernetes or container environment yeah, I, I think I think this is one of those it depends answers and depends on the individual dev teams and and things like that. Whereas I think sometimes uh, people assume the devs need too much skills, where they're like, well, they need to understand Kubernetes and deploying complex apps and, and manifest and and all these types of things. It says, well, well, maybe, <laughs> depending on your environment. Where like we've talked about previously, we we know customers that the dev teams they're just 
committing code and then they have a pipe, you know, the, the ops team, DevOps team has a pipeline tool that does everything after that. So they don't even know it's running on Kubernetes. So uh, there's the full spectrum. It's what makes sense for your uh, company. If you're, if you, if they're going to be very hands-on on the platform directly, yeah, they, they need to understand, you know, kind of how Kubernetes works and, and kind of the structure of it so they can create the manifest they need or or use tools that do that for them, uh, like we talked about in the previous show. Uh, but there, I don't think there's a, a hard set of skills that developers need to know this or else they can't use put apps on Kubernetes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's right. I think um, it's always easy for folks to, to sort of say, well, you know, if I have to change stuff, I'm not going to adopt it and so forth. I, I think if there are there is enough maturity now between uh you know different things that are in the market and again we talked about a lot of this last week um you know your your developers shouldn't have to to change a lot of what they do now if you want to you want to optimize what they're doing you want to you know create a more consistent environment sure you can kind of force them down a different path but um you know in terms of just kind of getting them used to being like okay this application this code will go through a pipeline get deployed be highly available you know, not not a lot should should have to sort of radically change at least at least initially once they get comfortable there's lots of tutorials about how to you know optimize memory for java and docker and and all sorts of like nuances like that but um yeah that, i don't think that, the, that that that's an area that probably doesn't need a huge change in, at least initially probably not something that a huge change is going to add a ton of value immediately so yeah, well, I think the the kind of that last area that you mentioned sort of ties in right here. So hygiene or security mm-hmm. on this may be an area where, uh, say, devs need to understand a little bit more or, or even the ops team is uh, if you're used to deploying on VMs and, and, hey, guess what? That VM just runs that app. So if it runs as root or, or any other stuff you do like that, you're not overly concerned. Uh, some of those things can get you in trouble in a container kind of space. So that's where I feel like devs maybe you know having some of those security or hygiene skills to say like hey when you build your container it shouldn't run as a privileged user or you should you should try not to use these ports or you know not get access to certain file systems or or you know things along those lines so just understand how that works so that way uh, they can build stuff in a, in a more secure manner right yeah the other thing i would say um yeah i mean we, we <laughs> the industry sort of said this forever like don't bolt on security at the end. Um, I think in terms of hygiene, you know, getting uh, people with with security expertise um, and also kind of monitoring expertise, so you you know what's going on. The, the you know the one thing with with Kubernetes, uh, you know, things can move fairly fast. Uh, thing you know, resources could be ephemeral; they can kind of come and go. You may not always know kind of where they are. Um, the sooner you start trying to understand how to monitor those environments, and the good news is. There are tons of tools out there that that monitor those. I mean, way better than a year ago and two years ago. Um, you know, don't don't wait until you have you know 150 containers and 20 applications and ready to go to production to be like, hey, security team, monitoring team, come on over here and let's see this, you know, this this giant thing that we've created. Um, you know, get them involved uh, early and often. I think is is good hygiene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's the key to the approach, and uh, you know, some of it's just an understanding. And oh, I didn't know. You know, I I've talked to developers where they go, oh, we tr- we try to run this thing and it's not working. We built it on this local, you know, say Minikube cluster on my laptop, and I'm trying to run this OpenShift, it's not working. And then you look, you're like, oh, well, 
yeah, it's a privileged container. Why? It's like, oh, I don't know. I just, this is, you know, I just, they didn't know. It's just like, oh, I just built it like this because I thought that's what you do. And you're like, oh, no, no, look, you can do users and stuff. And, the, and it's, it's just sort of a, uh, you know, something they're not used to more than it is, you know, purposely using bad security. Right, 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 right. Okay, cool. So, you know, a lot of that kind of fits in the core skills space. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I, I, I sort of put a bucket out there that said, like, what's, significantly changed if you went back a year two years from kind of what kubernetes did or the things around kubernetes to to where they are now um so that if you had looked at it a little while ago and and then maybe you're saying boy there seems like a lot of buzz around it again now like should i go back and look what are some of the big things that have sort of changed uh for the better um you know in in the community around the technology and so forth I think I actually think the biggest one, which you know, maybe you know, at the time being, you know, working at a storage company, so being uh, very, you know, seeing a very storage-centric, persistent storage view of the world. Uh, but as Docker and Kubernetes was was exploding, the uh, hey, but what about persistent stuff? Like, no, 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 don't do persistent. You know, even you saw it in Cloud Foundry, I was like, no, no, don't do persistent stuff anymore. Like, well, we we still need persistent stuff. So I think you know, kind of how that came across into the. Um, you know, Kubernetes world with things like, you know, originally was pet sets and, you know, and, and now growing from there all the ways to persistently keep whether it's Kubernetes objects or, you know, underlying data with storage and stuff like that. I think that's been the, the biggest change, which opens up a much broader um, option of applications that can be deployed onto uh, onto uh, Kubernetes. Yeah. No, I, it, yeah, that, that's the biggest thing. I know, you know, from Red Hat perspective, we, we got involved with people lifting, lifting and shifting things really early. Obviously, we've, we've seen the market sort of come back around to that, which is good. Uh, you know, both, both the customer market, but also, you know, lots of vendors saying, hey, you know, this is possible. So it, it, it does make people believe that, that this isn't just for brand new microservices or just tiny applications because containers are tiny. Um, I, I think for me, like, you know, one of the things that that we hear more about, and I think people are starting to grasp, um, you know, especially as they see the frequency that you have to, you know, maintain the platform is just the idea of immutability, learning what immutability means, um, you know, finding the technologies that are going to help you deal with immutability. Um, so whether it's, you know, kind of smaller OS footprints like a, you know, core OS or, um, you know, doing upgrades that are, you know, in an immutable fashion, as opposed to basically thinking about them as like patching environments. I think people are starting to grasp what immutability means and why it's sort of important in these more fast moving environments than, than what they were used to back when they did an upgrade once every, you know, once a year with an emergency patch or something like that, maybe thrown in between. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's kind of funny, the dichotomy of talking about persistence and then talking about immutability. But, yeah. Um, but I think, I think they totally go hand in hand right there, right? Where it's, um, you know, persistence from a data storage of the application is important. Um, but having a very, you know, kind of handcrafted, uh, environment for the platform itself is, is, you know, is bad. So, you know, having the ability to, keep that persistence for the applications but be able to roll over components of the platform to keep them you know like you said upgraded and everything like that i think is a pretty pretty big move forward right right I, you know the other thing about, about storage i think that that we're seeing is you know the early you know when we first sort of made containers work you know lift and shift containers or more stateful types of things in containers um you know we, we kind of extended 
sort of legacy Linux storage ways of thinking uh, to to Kubernetes. So you you know you could do an NFS mount, you could do an iSCSI mount, um, you know you could link to some cloud block storage. I think we're seeing maybe over the last six months or so more and more looking at can I treat storage as a as a native service within the cluster within the platform, um, and we're seeing more kind of container native storage. Uh, things like Rook and uh, you know Ceph and Gluster being available, and, and some of the other things going on. I, I think people are starting to be like, you know, why can't storage be like every other sort of native service in Kubernetes um, and take advantage of you know be be more aware and then link that into into the applications in a more you know kind of application aware uh, way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the uh, yeah that prescriptive nature in a way that the application can understand kind of where the storage is and everything. I think is big. I think you know the 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 beautiful goal of being like oh there's no persistence except for this one other service that someone else runs is sort of like a weird scope argument. And it's like well what if we're that other people that have to run that thing? So I think it's uh, I think it's a really good match from an application platform perspective. Yep. Yeah, the the last one, and and again, this is this is sort of new. Um, you know, we, we talked a little about operators. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, what, what's an operator do? I, I think the the operators discussion, um, and again, go back to episode thirty three or something, and in, in, in lots of depth with with Brandon Phillips. Um, you know, when when we first got started, people were kind of using some of the. N- known config management tools. So whether it was Chef Puppet Ansible, uh, you know, to kind of do things that were, you know, hey, I want to automate some stuff. These are the tools I've known and, and used for that. And I think we're learning um, kind of across the Kubernetes community that there are certain contexts of things that happen with within a cluster as things die and so forth that we needed a little more kind of Kubernetes native awareness than maybe we could get from the config management tools. And I think that's part of what's led us towards down this operator's path um, from, you know, day one and day two deployments and, and long living operability. Yeah, I think the, you know, and I think there's there's sort of a place for both and it's figuring out what makes sense. And you saw that initial thing of like people having fleets and fleets of containers on Kubernetes and like, well, how do you upgrade the app? It's like, well, we run this Ansible script or, you know, Chef or, and it pulls the new ones down and then it does the smart stuff in the app to be able to, you know, say like empty queues and kill nodes and of the application and start the new containers and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, that can now be baked into the operators. Um, so that way you don't have to use those tools. But then the question is for your particular environment, which, which way makes more sense. And I think for a lot of, um, simpler apps um i wouldn't say simple but you know not really crazy apps i think it may make a lot of sense um to you know just take advantage of on the platform with stuff like operators yeah yeah so you know again i i think we're getting smarter uh about how to deploy applications to to kubernetes i think we're we're realizing that you know, it doesn't mean those tools don't have a bunch of value, um, but but maybe tools that are a little more optimized for the environment might make make more value, especially if you know you've got frequently changing environments or uh, you know lots of things on top of that. So, well, cool. Um, let's jump to you know kind of maybe what's still hard. What's you know what are areas that uh, you know the the community still feels like are you know, difficult and, and, you know, obviously actively working on, but, uh, you know, maybe aren't, you know, sort of quote unquote solved problems or, you know, are still challenging problems at this time. Um, I, I think, you know, kind of, it's a bit like 
general, but then there's kind of things underneath it is sort of the the things we do today versus the new thing. Um, and where that gets into, you know, we, we've been talking about like applications, like, oh, here's how you deploy your apps and like CI, CD pipelines or something like, like, hey, containers are going to bring this sort of new way of working. Um, but that also applies to things like security and monitoring and, and all that other stuff. So it's that usually that question comes up is like, so we do security this way today. And I see we have these other ways that are cool and great with containers. Like, how does this fit together? Or especially when it comes to existing tools, like we monitor with this. And that can technically manage monitor containers. Should we use that or should we use, you know, something that's container specific? And that's where I see the sort of hard thing of like, well, your existing environment is going to stay and you have tooling and everything in place. And then you have this new thing. Like, how do they kind of zipper up together? Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is, is that you struggle sometimes it's always, you know, it feels like it's an easy path to go, hey, we have some existing tools, you know, they kind of manage our VMs or something, or they, you know, they kind of deal with our logs today. Um, and and I think we've seen, and, and we've seen this on the OpenShift side of things, where we sort of started by saying, hey, like, we have these available tools. Um, and then, you know, it's it, it becomes kind of this one plus one equals three thing in the community where um, the the kind of... Kubernetes or container-specific thing comes along, like a Helm or a Prometheus or something else, um, and and not only is that sort of a, a better, more optimized fit for this environment, but the things that are going to integrate with that are quickly integrating with that. And so, you know, if you weren't using Prometheus, you didn't get kind of the granularity or the scale that you might want. Uh, out of that, but then there might also be some other set of tools that were like, "Hey, we just we only integrated with Prometheus because we want to be in this container space." So, you know, being being willing to say, "Yes, I know we made an investment in certain things, but you know, are they going to you know help us or hinder us?" Um, is definitely something to to consider uh, as you're you know kind of saying, "Do I ad- adapt an old tool or should I should I adopt the new one?" Yeah, yeah, and I think I think this is you know kind of the challenge when we're starting off with skills too of like, well, um, you know, that that thing of like, well, we're building a new you know this container platform is going to be our future you know platform for new apps or moving existing apps, so we want to build the perfect one. So it's like, what's what's the best monitoring tool? What's the best software? What's the best security tool? What's the best store? You know, and then you start building this sort of Franken platform of you know the things you think are the best where i think that's where you see people be more successful is either we know this existing tool really well um it can do what we need to do in the container space so let's integrate that in and that makes sense or the hey we don't have a a really good handle on this exact kind of say monitoring or like say for example um distributed tracing you know may not have a lot of that so it's like well what is the what is what's the majority of people using? Because that's the easiest way to you know do things. When you see like even monitor, you know, like hey, people are using Prometheus pretty heavily for Kubernetes. Well, if that fits, then you know when new problems come up or new things and new versions of Kube, that's probably going to show up in, in Prometheus pretty quick too. Right, right. Yeah, the last little thing um, I, I had on the list was I think uh, I, I see two sort of things when people are, are sort of getting started. There's there's the there's the people who will go, hey, I, I spun up like Minikube or Minishift or something on their laptop, um, and and their laptop isn't very big. It's not super loaded with memory and so forth. And so they'll be like, well, that wasn't a very interesting experience. That kind of was a you know was slow, and I couldn't get very many containers up and running, or I couldn't I couldn't build a, a highly available multi you know multi master environment, um, or 
the ones who spend a ton, a ton of time trying to get really, really precise about things for like a production environment. And, but they haven't run anything before, right? They're, they're just going to kind of get it. Like, you know, this goes back to your sort of like, you know, uh, perfect is, is the enemy of, of good, you know, or best is the enemy of perfect. Like, don't, don't get overly prescriptive about kind of capacity planning early on. Um, you know, there are some very good, uh, tests and things that have been done around Kubernetes, but, but until you sort of start to understand your environment, you know, if it's a laptop type environment, take advantage of what's in the cloud, right? If you're just trying to learn stuff like use Catacoda, right? They've got environments that, you know, don't, aren't memory limited. If you're, you know, thinking about running some applications and you're worried about availability, like don't skimp on, you know, a few gigs of, of memory in your masters. Like, okay, we don't know exactly how these are going to scale yet. So, you know, memory's cheap. The CPUs are cheap. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't create a bad experience for yourself because you, you overthought kind of the precision of exactly which thing you needed on day one until you, you know, you kind of have some experience with it. Oh yeah. I've seen that where they, you know, people, customers want to talk about like bin packing and stuff. You're like, okay, cool. Like what's the app look like? I'm like, well, we're still containerizing it now. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. Um, and I, and I'm, to me, that's the advantage of cloud in general, whether it's public or, or private or whatever, but especially public of being like, I don't know what this is going to look like in the end. So let's start spinning stuff up. We need more nodes. We add more nodes. Let's, you know, let's, let's over provision a little and, and see where this goes, um, you know, figure it out. And then once, once it settles out and you have a pretty good idea, then you can say, well, here, we're going to build an environment that looks like this, that, or the other thing. But, you know, deploying in, in an area where you, if you're trying to get way too particular about it, I, I think that's also that old just mindset of being a previously where you, you were literally ordering servers or something. So it's like, well, we better size this out perfect because yeah. We're, we're cutting a PO and servers are showing up. Right, right. Let's uh, let's sort of wrap this up. I want to hit on one last thing. And, and again, this is sort of, um, you know, some summary of best practices that we've seen from just, you know, talking to a lot of companies that have deployed some stuff. What are what are some of the the success things that you've seen, some successful patterns or just behaviors of people that, you know, said, hey, we did this, it cut six months off of it, or we did this and it helped us with a culture change or, or something else. Like, what are maybe one or two of those things you've seen that you're like, yep, I wish other people would do this? Um, I think the, you know, kind of two things fall under the same heading of, you know, don't boil the ocean is one is um, get a quick win. Figure out something. Hey, we're trying to figure out this container thing. You know, okay, you don't need a service mesh and, and all these other components. Like, what stuff can you, you know, like say the most common one I see it's super successful is they have some sort of janky build process for building VMs and, and apps that are, say, just even old school like Java, you know, JVMs and, and stuff like that. And it's like, well, it's a, you know, it's a mishmash of scripts and stuff. You're like, well, here, if you can kind of like use Jenkins and turn this into, you know, a basic, very basic build pipeline to build the containers. And then now instead of spitting out a bunch of VMs, you can spit out containers pretty, you know, much more quickly and just even in the dev environment. So it's like, Hey, developers, when they ask for new environments, it used to take, you know, 10 minutes for each spin up. And now it takes, you know, 10 seconds. Cause it's all containers. Like we have a quick win. And then the developers say, Hey, we really like this. And, and, you know, and then you move from, you learn a lot. Um, and then you can also, you know, as you get moved closer to production, then you, you keep adding all this knowledge base. Yeah. The yeah. other thing, Go ahead. the other thing, well, that fits under that too is just the sort of it's funny we talk about like agile and iterative and everything like that at the you know developers are going to constantly update and you know get you know repos and and then the infrastructure people want to be like well we want to keep the platform very stable and and we're just going to do like once a year upgrade you know trying to be too 
um, slow moving and 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 sticky with the platform where they should be very iterative like the like the developers. So, hey, we're doing Kube, we're doing it this way. Hey, we found out that using deployments this way wasn't a good idea, so let's change that. And, oh, we've switched from doing NFS to this. And, oh, we, the ingress controller didn't work the way we wanted. And, and make those iterative changes constantly so, you know, both dev and the operation side get used to this, like, constant change. Uh, that way you can keep up uh, and, and constantly tweak as, as needed. Yeah. I think the two that I've got, and I'll keep this quick because I know we're we're sort of bumping up against some time limits. Um, the first one, there was a great uh, talk that that somebody gave at Red Hat Summit, uh, actually in, in one of the OpenShift gatherings, um, and it was from the operations team. And they said, you know, we're trying to help our developers, we're trying to make them successful. But one of the things that really helped us the most was we started putting our our operational applications, the things that we use in our day to day, on the platform, and it forced us to not just be people that you know, we're helping developers get their whatever on. They were like, hey, we need to live this. And and they said it was just a, you know, kind of a huge um, learning curve in terms of, you know, how do we get these things onto there? But once they did, then it was like, oh, well, we want to we want to optimize. We want to make them run better. We want to. Um, and, and what that turned out to was they now understood the platform better. And so as they were trying to help developers get onboarded, they were like, oh, here, here's a tip. Here's a little trick. Here's a little shortcut you can take. So, you know, sometimes as an operations team, don't think of yourselves as just the people that run the platform, like get, get experience as if you are an application owner as well um, for the applications that matter to you, maybe not necessarily to the development team and so forth. So that was one that I thought was, was a really good insight. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. So if people want to go take a look at it. Um, the other one, um, Oh, shoot, I, I, I'm sort of losing my train of thought. The other one I think is is sort of like you said, it goes to the winds. It's, you know, we hear a lot of people that just say, um, we just sort of jumped in. You know, we, we kind of had to get started. We just sort of jump in. Um, we know we're going to make some mistakes. Um, you know, so look, the thing that we know is is the business isn't going to going to sort of slow down. Um, people are going to ask you to do things faster. Um, I think the, the less sort of long, long-term planning you do, um, the, the better. And, and the other, the other little, I remember the, the other little tip is, you know, there are literally, you know, thousands of companies now that are running Kubernetes. Like don't, don't start as if you're, you're on an Island, right? There are Slack channels, there are communities, there are SIGs, there are, you know, reach out to us through the podcast. Like there are companies in your region, in your industry of your size that are doing some things. Um, and, and what we found is, is a lot of them are willing to, to help and talk. And even if they're in the same industry as you, um, you know, people have been pretty, pretty cool about this stuff. So, uh, don't feel like you're starting from scratch, you know, get engaged with some community somehow. Um, if we need, I mean, if we can help you, let us know. Uh, but you know, you're, you're definitely at this point at this stage, you're not alone. You're not starting from scratch. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, you know, Tyler, thanks for all the input today. Uh, folks, as always, thanks for listening. The show keeps growing and, uh, we keep hearing from different people that they're listening. So we appreciate the feedback. Um, again, send us questions, Give us a review on iTunes or on uh, Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the show. And uh, as always, folks, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.